You're listening to Informed, informal chats about theological topics to help us know and understand God together. Informed. Informed. Hi everyone, welcome to Informed. Simeon here and today I am sat down virtually across Zoom with Joe Ogborn and Dan Hayter. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. Good morning, Dan. Morning. So Joe will be known to uh, many of the City Church listeners of this, but uh, Dan might need a bit of introduction. Uh, Dan is based up in Peterborough. He's part of the Relational Mission Church there. And um, uh, I guess I know Dan through uh, Relational Mission training. I think we first met when I was on a training course and you were teaching on it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. that was a, a few years back, I remember, in Norwich. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a bit about what, what's your role within Relational Mission training now? So I, uh, so yes, yeah, so I work for relational mission training, uh, mainly helping with the lead course, uh, which is a, a two-year kind of foundational leadership training course uh, for any Christians in any area of leadership who want to get a good kind of biblical grounding and also developing some good leadership skills as a Christian. So I help to run that. So Steph Liston kind of leads the course, and I help him quite closely with that. Um, and yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's good good fun. It's it's changed a lot over the last few years um, in terms of number of bases that we have and so on, but it's always really exciting to be involved with it. Yeah. And you do that, what, two days a week and work for the church as well? Yeah. So two days a week for um, RM training and then two days a week for um, Life Church Peterborough. So I'm on the, on the leadership team there. Yeah. And the other day is studies. Other day is studies. Yeah. <laughs> Trying to fit in this never-ending PhD. <laughs> 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 takes a long time on one day a week eh yep yeah um well thank you both for being here um i've been enjoying starting these podcast episodes by asking um putting people on the spot and saying could you tell me in one minute why you are a christian so let's go with joe first joe why are you a christian very good question i'm a christian because i believe that jesus christ was raised from the dead and that changes everything that would be my potted summary. <laughs> Excellent. I think you, you could have the prize for the shortest yet. How about you, Dan? <laughs> you stole my answer. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that essentially the, the same would be, I think, come to, come to the conviction that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that, that that does change everything. And I think one of the one of the reasons I have that confidence is, I think, an experience of the uh, the the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the the assurance that comes through through that. So um, I think every, every time I'm tempted to to doubt whether it's right to be a Christian or not, I think there's always I always find this something to to hold on to in terms of the the experience of the Spirit that just makes me think. I just I, I however bad I'm feeling, I can't I don't feel I can put this down. I don't feel I can deny it. That so um, yeah, conviction of the resurrection of Christ, and that's in part through the experience of the the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's really helpful, Dan. And well, <clears throat> in the sense that um, I think I think about it in in similar kind of ways. No one's yet turned the tables on me and said, Simeon, why are you a Christian? But I think if I had to answer the question, I'd say, well, it's kind of those twin things of the historical evidence for the resurrection, um, which is which is quite you can get your hands on objectively, but it feels very distant. So alongside that, there's the experience of God at work in my life and other people's lives, which is harder to kind of pin down and argue a logical case from, but feels more tangible and is more immediate. And, you know, you can read books and books and books and so on of, th of stories of God doing stuff. 
And so just those two together, I find it quite helpful as a combination. Yeah. Well, today we're talking about um, uh, what theologians call models of the atonement. Um, I guess the word models there borrowed from science, isn't it, Joe? Joe, what do we mean when we're talking about model of atonement? Uh, so models, yeah. So, I mean, I think there's, as I understand it, when I think about atonement models, I think you've got the biblical witness that this is what has been accomplished by the incarnation, death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And then the model of the atonement is the, the way in which we seek to understand how the incarnation, death and resurrection of Christ accomplishes what it accomplishes. It's almost like the, mechanistically we're saying, how does the death of Jesus lead to the, the benefits? Mm. So I think yeah. Fleming Rutledge goes for the idea of motif in her book, The Crucifixion. Mm. She likes the idea of like the image. It's kind of a metaphorical image or some people prefer model. Whatever word you go with, I think as a scientist, I recognize that a model only captures part of the truth. And I think that's quite a helpful way into thinking about the atonement that any model you choose is a vehicle to help us understand, but it probably doesn't contain the fullness of all that scripture says about the death and resurrection of Christ. Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, so so Jesus' incarnation and death and resurrection and ascension and second coming, etc., um, accomplish something amazing and transformable, transformational for mankind and for creation but exactly how and what um is what we're talking about and the the um the most common way to talk about that and we can maybe get into this perhaps the most important uh, many would say the most important is the idea of um what theologians call substitutionary penal substitutionary atonement um which is to do with jesus um jesus uh well no i won't try and put it into words because Joe's got a quote um, uh, which is quite a helpful definition that we just to uh, give us a starting point. Yeah so this comes from uh, the website Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig and he's a, he's a theologian who's done a fair amount of writing on penal substitution atonement and this is how he defines it. He says penal substitution in a theological context is the doctrine that God inflicted upon Christ the suffering which we deserved as the punishment for our sins as a result of which we no longer deserve punish. Notice that this explanation leaves open the question whether Christ was punished for our sins. Some defenders of penal substitution recoil at the thought that God punished his beloved son for our sins. For example, John Stott advises, we must never make Christ the object of God's punishment. Good old Great. dense definition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But essentially we're, we're talking about something happening on the cross as a result of which God does not punish us for our sins. And that's some, something to do with the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Um, so I guess this is the idea that we don't get punished for our sins, we get forgiven. This probably in, in our kind of churches, the most common way of thinking about what's going on at the cross. Um, but it's, it's, easy to, it's easy to slip into unhelpful ways of talking about it. Right, Dan? Yeah, so I think, um, and, and often this is where you get, I think, quite extreme reactions against the doctrine. So I think um, 
some some of us may have heard of the the idea of saying that God punished his sons his son for our sins is essentially the equivalent of cosmic child abuse and um, and I think what you, what you end up getting is quite an extreme reaction often based on a misunderstanding I think of the of the doctrine I think probably two kinds of misunderstandings so I think uh, one that that Joe kind of highlighted so this this idea almost of um, it, it the, the sense of unfairness almost in it where you think well wait a minute like you can't just punish someone else for like you can't punish a third party um, I think that's that's the way often people think about it it's like oh okay well so and so is guilty well the judge just finds a random person on the street brings them in kills them instead and 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 everyone at that point is thinking well that's not a, that's not a carrying out of justice and I think that's one one misunderstanding that can lead to uh, so the whole cosmic child abuse thing actually I think is partly rooted in in a misunderstanding of uh, this idea that that it's a third party that's being punished but I think actually when you've um, and this is where a lot of kind of like all all doctrines to a certain extent intersect if you've got I think a good uh, healthy understanding of the doctrine of the trinity you realize it's not a third party that's that's Mm -hmm. being punished like Jesus is not some kind of random other person Um, he is actually a full fully representative of um, of what you what you could call the guilty party he's like fully human but he's also fully uh, fully God and so actually we're not talking about a third party like taken off the street punished instead of um in, instead of us um actually there's a there's a sense in which um Jesus is Jesus is not a third party so we and also I think I think cosmic child cosmic child abuse is um obviously it's a very emotive kind of way of of talking of talking about it I don't think anyone who I don't think anyone who holds to penal substitutionary atonement would uh, would would ever would ever say something along the, along the lines of and therefore we should do this to our children as well I think there's there's also that aspect where as soon as you frame something in a really emotive way um, it's very difficult to have a and actually a sober minded discussion around it so I think there's there's part I think partly the emotive language doesn't help but I think also there's a misunderstanding very often when when there's a very strong reaction to it where there's almost this understanding of Jesus as this third party who's unrelated to unrelated to God unrelated to human beings and I think actually when you've got a a good understanding of the incarnation and a good understanding of the trinity you realize that this is not a third party this is uh this is a this the son is fully representing humanity and is also fully divine and as such is able to um to, to take this role, which we, I will not describe in any in any more precise language until we've we've had a bit more of discussion about it. But I do think that 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 does explain some of the reaction. On on the Trinity, would it be would it be accurate to say, Dan, that the 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 um, Orthodox line on the Trinity would be that there is one will in God. So what the Father wills, the Son wills. Yeah. So I think that's that's you haven't got a yeah. you haven't got the son being punished against his will in any sense whatsoever yes absolutely so i, I think that's really important as well this is not a this is not a kind of this is not god the father tie like ch- tying god the son to the to the cross against his uh, against mm-hmm. his will this is yeah so that's a, a very very often doctrine i think as as joe kind of suggested earlier when we're talking about models for the atonement we're talking about almost like metaphors and words that can express what has what has gone on and i think very often people can hear um language like 
um, there's one like there's one willing God and so on. And they think, well, it doesn't I, I don't see that kind of language in the Bible. And I think, well, yes, but actually, it's the what we're trying to do is we are trying to trying to find language that helps us to make sense of what we see in the Bible and helps to set up helpful boundaries. And I think it's a really helpful boundary that if we understand that there is one shared will um, with the so God uh, God is one being three persons, and each of those persons has has the same will what the father does is what the what is what the son does what the son does is what the spirit does there's one will at that point we're not talking about jesus against his own will against his own will going to the cross and so even uh, i think what we see what we do see is the jesus in his human nature experiencing weakness and experiencing a desire to not have to go to the cross but even then he submits to the father's will but in his in in his divine nature jesus is not in any way opposed to the the will of the father and so yeah it's not a it's not an unwilling sacrifice um in any way and i think that's really important to emphasize yeah one of the things that's always struck me if i grew up with penal substitution as probably the the model i was given of how how the cross functions how how my forgiveness has been um achieved is the absence of punishment language in the new testament so i, I did a i was reading a, a paper by someone they looked at you know what what the new testament what does the new testament say about what the cross of jesus what the death and resurrection of jesus achieved and you've got jesus died to provide eternal life to reconcile us to god to express love to defeat evil to provide an example to justify us apart from the law to free us from sin to live righteously uh, to die for the forgiveness of our sins but it's interesting that penal substitution latches in, latches, I'd say latches is probably a bit of a motive word, takes punishment as this kind of the main way that God's achieving something. And yet, I find it interesting that that isn't the huge amount of the language used in the New Testament about the death of Jesus. Um, and you've got verses like, you know, God condemns sin in the flesh of Christ. And I think that's a real key distinction, which it wasn't that definition that William Lane Craig mentioned, that... I would lean towards this idea personally that what God is condemning is sin, not necessarily a person. Um, and I wonder what, yeah, what you guys, how, what you guys think about that. Yeah, I, that's a, it's a really good point in terms of the the, the biblical material because I think um, I'm I'm happy for someone to point me to, to to other stuff here. But on on reflection, I think if 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 you think okay, biblically what passages support penal substitutionary atonement so i think i think all of us would be absolutely clear i think substitutionary atonement is is everywhere in the new testament christ died for our sins christ died yes. for us on our behalf that's 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 clear but in terms of the punishment side of stuff um i'm happy for you guys to point to other ones but the only the only one i can think of that, that gives some kind of clarity in terms of punishment language is isaiah 53 um and so that obviously that's not to say penal substitutionary atonement isn't important because i think if it's if it's in one place in the bible then it is it is hugely important but it's 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 to help almost relativize so not diminish the importance of it but to say wait a minute there's all of these other ways in which the the cross what is achieved at the cross is spoken of that doesn't use that language are we perhaps in danger of so emphasizing one model that we miss something of the glory of the others and i, I yeah I, i'd agree the 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 models and language that the new testament uses um 
Um, I, I might, I, I, there might be some verses that have slipped out of my head, but I think you're right, Joe. I can't think of, a, of any New Testament passages that would emphasize specifically the punishment mm. nature. Uh, I think there are many that, that emphasize the substitution side of stuff, but not necessarily the, the penal side of things. Yeah. And I think you're right, yeah, when it comes to condemning, Romans 8, he condemned sin in the flesh. There's almost, it's almost like Paul is wanting to, to steer, to, to, he's almost, it's almost like he's wanting to avoid saying God punished Jesus, yeah. um, as much as that might be something that we would say could perhaps be true from Isaiah 53. But there's, there's almost this desire to make a distinction between sin in the flesh and then the actual punishing of Jesus as if he was quite literally a guilty person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think, so for me, I look at, so there's, there's a model of atonement called recapitulation, which fundamentally is this idea that in the incarnation, Christ takes on humanity, or the, the, the second person of the Trinity takes on humanity and effectively kind of undoes what Adam did. So Adam failed to be obedient, Christ is obedient, Israel was disobedient, Christ is obedient. Um, so kind of there's an overturning of Adam and so Jesus sums up a new humanity in himself. And I think that's probably a terrible description of it. But, but it's this idea that there's this, Jesus acts as a representative so he take, he's a new humanity and the death of Jesus is the constant, you know, the wages of sin is death. So his death takes, he takes on death. And in doing so, we participate in that death. Therefore, we can participate in his resurrection. And I sometimes I find with discussions of penal substitution is I have, have yet to understand why it needs to be such a violent death. I think that's where people kind of respond is the idea what can what can come across in in maybe some traditional discussions of penal substitution is that jesus's death needed to be violent it needed to be at the cross and and that has ramifications for our view of god about you know if we use language of punishment why is that punishment why does it look like that i don't know if that's a coherent question but i for me there's always been a nagging few questions around why the cross was the cross. Hmm. And and you almost, I think sometimes you almost find yourself in the position of thinking um, crucifixion has to be the the most horrible form of death that you could possibly imagine. If we could possibly imagine something worse, then, then I, I don't know, almost, almost this idea that it, it had to be crucifixion because it had to be the most... Uh, the most, the most horrible. I think, I, I think even, even on, even on that level, I think I would, I, I don't think I would elevate the, the, the physical suffering of the cross to the same level it, mm. ever as the, what, what we might call the spiritual um, element to it. So I don't, I, I, I think you could, you could talk about, I suppose, fulfillment of prophecy side of stuff. You think actually if Isaiah 53 is talking about by his stripes, we are healed. He was crushed for our iniquities. You kind of think that in terms of fulfillment of prophecy and, and so on, there needs to be a violence to it in some way. Um, but I would, I would always want to, I, I think I'd always want to, to help people to understand that what what you're seeing going on on the outside is nothing compared to what is going on beneath the surface and so i suppose in that sense you could say whether it was a violent death or not the anguish that christ is experiencing i think probably first and foremost is not coming from a primarily from a place of physical suffering although that's mm. going to be a, a part of it but is coming from what he is experiencing as the representative of, of 
of humanity taking on I mean obviously there's curse language that's used isn't there in Galatians Galatians 3 um, which I, I'm not sure is quite the same as um, punishment language in the sense that we would often often think of it but there is a there's an anguish side to the cross which does seem to be necessary um, but is that is that is that purely exhausted by the 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 physical violence and pain of the cross I'm, I'm I don't think it is I think there's much there's something much deeper that is going on in terms of the anguish mm. that that is being experienced by Christ at the cross and um yeah there's a few rambling thoughts on on that I guess it's prob it I, I can't remember exactly what she says but Fleming Rutledge in the crucifixion argues that it it was important that it was a violent death right not just that Jesus is incarnate and then dies in his sleep one day but I think that's from a place of the shame and humiliation this kind of mm -hmm. this that he he takes on the shame humiliation the guilt guilt in terms of uh maybe that's wrong word but there, i think there's an identification with yeah. the lowly the suffering in all of it it can be somehow redeemed i guess yeah. i guess what i find is the, the penal part leads us into areas where we're going well christ's suffering had to be a certain amount or or for me, we end up in a, in an, for me, some problematic areas where we somehow have to go, well, Christ suffered this much, and that's enough to be enough kind of suffering for the, the, the Christians who are saved. And I guess definitely there are some, uh, it can lead to a kind of redemptive view of suffering, which is almost, we wouldn't want to go to this idea that the kind of suffering is good in and of itself. Uh, what am I trying to say? I think I, I know kind of particularly for, for people who have been in those kind of abusive relationships, when we talk about penal substitution, there's a lot of caution about how that's how we how we speak on that, because it can have quite terrible consequences if we make kind of suffering in and of itself salvific. Or you might go, no, absolutely, Joe, you're wrong. But it, it's only in the case of Jesus that we want to mm -hmm. hold it up. Um Yeah, well, there, there is. Oh, sorry, go for it, Simeon. Well, I was going to say that we've been talking about sort of some of the some of the ways that we need to be careful about how we articulate the idea that Jesus' suffering um, uh, results in our forgiveness, and Jesus' suffering um, Jesus suffered so that we don't have to suffer the consequences of our sin. And um, there are some more helpful and less helpful ways to articulate that um but still i guess uh, is it is it helpful still to say that 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 penal substitution atonement is is a really important piece in the jigsaw some would say the most important piece in the jigsaw of what's going on on the cross mm. I think it's an I think it's an important one. So I think the what what is perhaps what's debated. I don't think is so much whether it's important. I think it's what what the actual mechanics of that mm. of, of that are. But I do think I, I think you got. I think we're going to struggle to get around Isaiah fifty three if we don't have some kind of penal substitution in some way. Whether that means that Christ literally becomes a guilty person, which I I I feel a bit uncomfortable with. But the there there is the language of he is. 
Um, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace. So there's, there's punishment language going on. Um, so I think it's, it's hugely important in the sense that I, I don't think we can say that any model of the atonement isn't important if it's biblical, because I think, um, I, I think otherwise you end up in a position where, where you have to say just because something's mentioned once but really clearly doesn't mean it's that important. I think actually if something is mentioned once but is quite clear and, and also is seen as being fulfilled in the New Testament as well. So mm. I think actually that that passage up from Isaiah 53 is uh, quoted in, in, in Acts 8 from uh, the um, Ethiopian eunuch. So I think it's hugely important. Um, whether penal substitutionary atonement is the most important I, I don't know. So I, it's been a while since I've read John Stott's um, the, the Cross of Christ, but I know he and I can't remember whether he's whether he says that penal substitutionary atonement is the controlling metaphor or whether he says that substitution is the controlling metaphor, because I think if he says that substitution is the controlling metaphor, I think you could make a case for that. I think you could say that if by substitution you mean quite in a quite loose sense on our behalf for us i think absolutely i think there's you could um you, you could you could quite easily claim that that becomes a central metaphor in terms of the benefit of the cross for us at least obviously i think there are benef- there's the benefit of the cross that goes beyond the individual christian but in terms of the benefit of the cross for us i think that substitution i think is central um whether penal substitution becomes the all-encompassing controlling one i i'm less sure about that and i'm and because I think at that point you end up you do end up taking something that is in one single passage, but not necessarily emphasised that much in the New Testament, and you make it the controlling metaphor. Whereas I think I'd prefer to look for something a, a bit broader, and I do think that the idea of substitution more generally, Christ dies on our behalf for us. I do think I would be happy to see that as a controlling mm. metaphor. But um, I don't know what you think, Joe. Um, I, I think it very, 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 very important because it's in the Bible. Yeah. But. As to whether it's the the central most important one, I'm not sure. I think Isaiah 53 is the one for me. Um, I was just this week, I was, week I was reading someone's interpretation of Isaiah 53, and it, to, to, to paraphrase it, they managed to get out of penal substitution. <laughs> so, um, I, for me, that is the key passage. I was, I, for me, I'm thinking about is going what it, what does this mean? Because I think yes, it's referenced in the New Testament, so therefore we've got to take it seriously and try to understand how they understood it. But I think the rest of the New Testament language doesn't talk about punishment to the extent that I would say most gospel presentations do in kind of traditional evangelical circles. I, one thing I think is interesting is Jesus's own self-understanding in the gospels of what is happening. So you've got the language of giving his life as a ransom for many. You've got the language in John 12, Jesus said, you know, now the rule of this world will be cast out. I think there's definitely, you know how you, probably in 10 years' time, you'll look back on yourself and go, oh, that's what you're going for at that point. For me, at least, I've kind of been opened up, I think, to more of the kind of Christ as conquering king, Christ as victorious language in the New Testament more recently. And seeing that there and going, oh, actually, I don't know to what extent I've really understood the gospel in that way, or this is what Christ is achieving, the, the, just the overcoming of sin and death. And I, I think one big thing I think that's really important and these are lots of thoughts chucked together, is how do we view humanity's problem? Because I think the penal substitution model sees it within a kind of legal framework that there's kind of sin has been done against God, there needs to be a a punishment for sin. That would be one framework. But I think you also see hugely in Paul's writing sin as this power that enslaves. I am, it's not just I'm culpable for what I do wrong, but I'm also 
enslaved to sin. And people who are enslaved need redemption and liberating. And I think that is a huge theme, stretching right back from Exodus and the Passover language, and actually the Passover being an overriding metaphor in an idea in the New Testament. And so I guess what I'm realizing is, is there's a huge amount of liberation language in the New Testament that probably in most of my kind of sermons I've listened to hasn't come forth as this is what the gospel's about. It largely has been on penal substitution, which I think we're kind of saying you've got Isaiah 53 and maybe we've overemphasized it to the detriment of other models or metaphors in the New Testament. So, so you're picking up there on what um, theologians call the Christus Victor model, right? That Jesus, yeah. I don't know why they use, is it Latin? <laughs> at that point <laughs> but uh, yeah the idea that that in in the death and resurrection jesus is um uh, defeating the 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 dark enemy powers that stand against us and stand against god yeah um, and earlier on joe you were alluding to a a recapitulation model jesus as the second adam the one who begins the new humanity who who i, I was reading um psalm 2 this morning and um was uh, just struck by um, uh, God saying, God saying of Israel's king, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And that being his answer to the, the rebellion um, of the nations. Mm. And just how, yeah, God's answer to, um, God's answer to the rebellion of the nations is to set his king up over his people which is what the commission was to mankind in the beginning, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion, um, which, which goes awry. God does it to some extent through the Davidic kings, but then ultimately through Jesus. And it is, But now we have a human on the throne of the universe, which is how it was always supposed to be. Mm. I think one thing that... I don't know, we've discussed Simeon and I've discussed with Daniel as well, you know, think about atonement is actually my take home has been that I want to become more scriptural. And I'm, by that, I mean, actually trying to preach, this is what the text says. So, you know, when it says, um, you know, Jesus died to justify us apart from the law, for example, if that were to be what I was preaching on is to try and focus on that. And I think often I found myself getting... I go into the mechanics of this is how the atonement works. And actually, sometimes we, I think the Bible's more silent on that than we might like it to be. And I, I, I've been challenged to go, okay, there are some things that the Bible doesn't speak definitively on. How did, the, you know, how did Christ's death and resurrection and the incarnation all work together to achieve X, Y, and Z? And for me, I want to know how that works more. But I also think there's a humility in saying, where the Bible doesn't speak definitively, I should seek to not speak definitively. But where it does speak definitively, seek to you know, preach the benefits of the incarnation, death and resurrection more fully. And I guess enjoy, and I think it does lead me to worship, thinking about all these atonement models. I absolutely am passionate about it, but I've had to learn to be a bit more, okay, there are, there are different things going on in scripture and um, it may not be as ex planetary as i would like it to be on how it all works but that's okay yeah i, I think that that's helpful i think also you i think you can you can use that when it comes to um 
when when you are preaching on a passage that does give you some kind of model of the atonement of thinking what is this passage saying i think that's really mm. important because i think um I, i've definitely found that in, in my teaching and, and, and preaching in the past you can i think because it's in a sense because it's easy and understandable you can re- you can default to the penal substitutionary model even when you're preaching on passages that are talking about something else i think i think if a passage is talking about the christus victor model i think it's then difficult to preach penal substitutionary atonement as clearly but i think when you're talking about things like romans 8 god he, he condemned sin in the flesh when you're talking about galatians 3 he bore the curse of the law for us i find myself so quickly going from what paul was probably talking about in context so galatians 3 bearing the curse of the law there's there's a whole scriptural narrative that is being subsumed in Christ at that moment. And I find myself so quickly going, see, therefore Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. And I'm thinking, that's true, but I don't think I've preached the passage. I don't think I've preached the glories of this part of the text. And um, yeah, to pick up on another thing that, that Joe said, which I think is is really important, is some, sometimes the Bible just doesn't give us a model in a particular text. And what is often surprising, actually, is if you read the uh, the, the gospel sermons in the book of Acts, is how little the apostles in those sermons actually dwell on the mechanics of the atonement. In fact, I, I don't think a single gospel presentation has anything about the mechanics of the atonement um, really at all in there. And it, and that's not to say that it's not important, important or that we shouldn't glory in them or spend time thinking about it, but it, it is to say that sometimes the Bible doesn't give us the answer that we necessarily always want it to and i think at that point it's always important to think okay what is the answer this text is trying to give us what's the question that this text is trying to answer are we coming to this text with the wrong question in the first place um and i think sometimes that that can help us because i think what it then does is give us a much broader more glorious overall view of the gospel than if we were to try and think i need to be able to preach this model of the atonement from this passage uh, how do i fit it in instead yeah. to say okay what's the question this text is asking and how how is how is the cross answering that particular question that's really great and i really like your example from from galatians about uh, the curse of the law um and the acts thing's interesting isn't it we we always talk about that on lead um because it's giving you a bit of a window. I mean, through the filter of Luke's selective recording, you don't know exactly why he's choosing to write as he does, but it's seeming to give you a window on how they went about evangelism. Mm. And I think we often do our evangelism using epistle-like material, which was written to churches, rather than acts-like material, which is people preaching the gospel. That's very good. And I think that's where sometimes I've come across articles and people say, you know, penal substitutionary atonement is the gospel. And I personally have to go categorically I don't think that is the gospel. I think it's it fits under the umbrella of the gospel. Um, but I think the gospel is broader than mm. a, a, a model of the atonement. Yeah. Um, you, you was, it, one always hesitates to use the word just when one's talking about something like that. Yes. <laughs> something as glorious and weighty as the substitution of Jesus for us. Um, Dan, you, you allegedly know a thing or two about Paul. Um, you might be writing a PhD. Um, would it be fair to say that in Paul, when he talks about our salvation, um, one of the things he talk, one of the ways he talks about it most often is is our union with Christ? Mm, yeah, I think the. I, I haven't done a count, but I, I would I would venture to guess, and based on uh, based on people who have done who have done a count, I think um, I think the most common way that Paul would generally tend to refer to a, a follower of Jesus is 
someone who is in Christ. Um, of that, whether it's the most common, it's it's one of the predominant ways. And I do think that yeah, for for Paul, there is a um, there is a reality to union with Christ that often I think we turn into a bit of a metaphor. And so I think that 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 is where perhaps sometimes the overemphasis of the penal substitutionary at the expense of others leads us in trouble because it then makes it very difficult for us to be able to relate to or understand what Paul is talking about when sometimes he uses very vivid, real language to talk about the fact that we're united with Christ. So I think if 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 Paul is it, when Paul is talking about um, things like sexual immorality in First Corinthians five and six, the kind of language he uses is to say, "How can I take a?" We often use the word "member" because um, a, a, a member of Christ. Now, the problem with the word "member" is we have members of organisations, whereas actually, if you perhaps translate that a little bit more vividly. Um, Paul's probably saying, shall I take a limb of Christ and make that limb a member with a prostitute? And you think, actually, Paul's argument for discouraging sexual immorality doesn't work if the fact that we are united with Christ is just a metaphor. Um, But it does work if it's real. Now, I'm not saying that we are literally physical arms of Jesus, but, um, but Paul seems to see a reality to our union with Christ that means that he can't conceive of the idea of taking someone who is united with Christ and them sleeping with a prostitute because there's a realness to it it's not he's not just arguing from the point of view of oh it's inappropriate for someone who calls himself a christian he's saying there's something tangibly spiritually wrong about this very act because there's a i don't know there's almost an act of severing that happens there's a reality to it and i I do think that if we only have a concept of penal substitutionary atonement we can have a very badge-like understanding of salvation i think that's a, a kind of an image i've used often is this idea that salvation is basically you get given you get given a, a pass that you can swipe to get into heaven and you think well nothing has actually changed in me mm. all i've been given is a is a is a, a, a card that i can swipe to get into heaven now on the one hand for certain texts that's actually quite a helpful image and metaphor because actually when we're talking about justification justification is a legal declaration nothing in us has to change in order for a legal declaration to be given but Paul always goes further than just a legal declaration um, justification is part of the package but we're not just given a card that swipes us into heaven we are united with Christ mm. we are we have gone from being sinners to saints interestingly when Paul uses the language of sanctification which so often we use to refer to a gradual change and I do think you can apply that language by extension to a gradual change he's talking about something that has happened to us as a decisive moment we have been set apart we've been made holy and I I do think a, a bit of a kind of concern of mine is that we we I think we sometimes don't have a category for the fact that when someone is when someone gets saved when someone gets joined to Christ there's something that happens to them that means that their life is going to look different Mm. not just because they're going oh I'm so grateful that Jesus has declared me righteous I, I now need to polish up my act a little bit but actually something substantial has changed that means that their very desires are different now they want to love God they want to do what is righteous they want to do what is right and I think when we have a more I think when you when you read the language that Paul uses, uh, I think that that makes complete sense because in Paul's understanding, we have been united with Christ, and there's something very real and substantial about that that goes beyond um, being declared righteous, even though we're not. Which is true, glorious part of the gospel, but it's not the complete gospel. Yeah. Um, there's more than just a declaration. There's a transformation that happens, and I think that happens partly through union with with Christ. And so if I, if I, that's really helpful, Dan, if I were to 
throw a verse or two from Romans 6 at you and ask, how does that idea help us understand the cross? If Paul says all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Mm. How, how, does, how does Jesus' death and resurrection affect us in that sense? I think it's because it's something that happens to us in a sense as well. And now I think uh, maybe a, another passage to throw in that can be helpful, quite helpful here, talking about something slightly different, but it's 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about Jesus has been raised and he talks about the language of first roots. He says Jesus's resurrection is the first roots, which means it's the first installment of a much bigger thing. And I think when Paul thinks about resurrection, for example, he is when he thinks about Jesus's resurrection, he doesn't he doesn't just think of it as an isolated thing. He doesn't just think of it as, oh, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Therefore, that demonstrates that what he said is actually true. I mean, that that is true. Him being raised from the dead does demonstrate that it's true, but it's part of a much bigger deal. It's part of the general resurrection of the dead that we will all participate in if we have joined to Christ. But Christ has been raised in advance. And I think when you take that idea that Jesus's resurrection is not an isolated event um, and then come back to Romans 6, you realize that when Paul says that we were buried with him in baptism and just as Christ was raised from the dead, we might walk in newness of life. In some way that Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't go into the mechanics, which might frustrate us because we want to find out the mechanics. But somehow, when we put our trust in Jesus, when we were baptized into Him, we participated in His death and resurrection. Which I think comes back to some of the recapitulation yeah. kind of model that Joe was talking about earlier. That there's something about being joined to Christ, where what has happened to Christ becomes true of you. That we die and we come back to life. And yes, there's a sense that that will happen physically to us. But it's also clear that that is something that has already happened. You might want to use the word spiritually, although I'm not a massive fan of using the word spiritually because it makes it sound like it's not really real. But we have experienced resurrection life because we've been joined with Christ in his death and resurrection. And Paul, as much as we want to shake him and say, explain how that happens, he doesn't say so. He just says, yeah, when when you put your trust in Jesus, you were baptized into him. You were buried and raised to newness of life with him. Mm. And so something substantial has changed about who we actually are which interestingly is the main, I think one of the main motivations that Paul gives for why we should be living lives that are growing in righteousness is that something has changed and that that is, the, that is now the way that, that we should therefore live because that's who we now are. We're not just doing it out of gratitude. We are doing it, it I think actually mainly the main motivation is that is now who we are. That's, mm. we, we have been set free from an inability to please God through Jesus' death and resurrection, now we have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit, through union with Christ, to actually please God. Um, so it's it's huge, but Paul doesn't give us the mechanics always, unfortunately. Um, we'd love him to. Well, I think that's really key, that I think, as I reflect on myself and the reading I've done around the atonement, is I love Christus Victor, Christ Victorious, but even in that atonement metaphor, there's no real explanation of how Christ defeats sin and death other than, well, sin was condemned in the flesh and he died and somehow that defeats and i wonder whether growing up growing up i was introduced to penal substitution and re-atonement because it kind of is a mechanics like it's a way of saying a plus b equals c and therefore it it appeals to the ability to understand while what you're saying about the union participation with christ death and resurrection a lot of the other new testament ideas are declarations but without necessarily an explanation of how it's happened and I wonder whether just 
recognizing that sometimes we lean towards wanting to understand can veer us towards mm -hmm. adopting penal substitution atonement more than we should just because it gives us something to stand up and preach and say well this is how it works yeah yeah, yeah. but even then maybe just one final uh the verse to 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 throw in on that is even that 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 beloved verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Again, you've got the language of union with Christ. And so I think I do think that there's a, um, again, yeah, it's it's not as mechanical as penal substitutionary and atonement, but it does, it, it essentially gives you the benefits of penal substitutionary, so, penal substitutionary atonement alongside all of the other benefits. And so I do think that that, Un, having a deeper understanding of union with Christ and really taking that seriously, not just as a metaphor, but actually something that in some sense is very true, Absolutely. I think helps us with uh, not just where penal substitutionary atonement sits, but where a whole other bunch of models of the atonement sit. Um, what has happened to Christ has happened to us through union with him. And so that doesn't explain all of the mechanics, but I think it helps us a little bit along the way. It's glorious stuff, isn't it? Is there... Um, is there anything else that either of you sort of feel that we haven't touched on that you sort of think, oh, this is just a beautiful thing about the atonement that um, I'd love to mention? I think one thing that springs to mind is just the the fact that uh, so we've been we've been preaching through the book of Revelation as a, a church recently, and one thing that's striking in Revelation is. Um, heaven does not want to brush the cross under the carpet as some kind of inconvenient thing that we're all just going to forget about it once it's happened. It's like, oh, well, that had to happen. But now, that, but no, Jesus is referred to as the lamb for the whole of eternity. And I, and I do think that there's a, um, th we, we have to be careful that, I think we have to be careful that we don't underplay the violence and morbid nature of the cross, I think, because we do ourselves no service if we say, oh, it wasn't actually that bad. I don't think, like, I, I, if any of us were to see a crucifixion, we probably wouldn't want to stay there and watch. Um, but I think what we mustn't do in the process is then say, it is then so emphasise the horrific nature of it that we're not able to see it from heaven's perspective as in some paradoxical way the very centre of history and an absolute victory and glorious and glorious thing that means that Jesus is able to be referred to as the lamb who was slain for the whole of eternity without heaven thinking, oh, that was a bit of a minor, that was a bit of an inconvenience, but I'm glad we got through it. But to actually look at it and say, wow, that was a moment of victory. It's the, it kind of puts in perspective what Paul says when he says the, the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, we look at the cross and we say, yeah, that's horrible. It's brutal. It's horrific. It's, it's awful. But it's the power of God for salvation. And so we're looking at the cross and simultaneously being horrified by, the, by its, its nature, but at the same time glorying in the fact that it happened and that God demonstrated his wisdom by using something as awful as an instrument of human execution and torture to actually win a victory that has purchased salvation for uh, for, for for human beings, so it's um, that just sprung to mind. Just that that idea: Jesus is the Lamb for the whole of eternity. Heaven doesn't want to forget about the cross. That's great. I've got nothing to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going. I was just thinking, if if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, "Wow, the the atonement is far more." rich than i'd really properly thought about is there something you'd recommend that um they read um that wasn't long or technical 
a little book that springs to mind. It's not it's not primarily about the uh, the the cross, but it does it, it does crop up in it. It's a little book by um, by Mike Bird called "What Christians Ought to Believe." And he basically goes through the uh, the, the Apostles' Creed, um, and as a, and, and obviously there's a, a chunk in the Apostles' Creed about the um, for our uh, for our sins he um, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And he just spends a bit of time in that chapter looking through a number of different models of the atonement. He doesn't go into huge amounts of detail, but I think if someone wanted a, a treatment that wasn't in too much depth, that was written by quite a <laughs> quite a funny Australian New Testament scholar, I think that could be a, a helpful little little introduction. There are lots of very technical works. I think Fleming Rutledge's uh, <laughs> Rutledge's work, um, which I still haven't read, I have to confess. I need to get my hands on it. Um, I've heard is exceptional. But if you wanted something a bit more introductory, Mike Bird's little book um, on what Christians ought to believe has got a chapter on the atonement, which from what I remember is really helpful, but quite written in quite a basic um, way. Joe, Fleming Rutledge, The Crucifixion, recommend without reservation or recommend with caveats or? Who am I to offer caveats on a book? <laughs> <laughs> Quite frankly. Yeah, okay, I, sorry. Well, I, question behind the question. Um, you gave it to me a few birthdays ago and I've been working through it and I still haven't reached the end. Um, uh, but it's, it's wonderful, isn't it? Perhaps leans in some universalist directions. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. be completely comfortable with. Yeah, I mean, I think the more, to be honest, every book I've I've read on the atonement so far is reflecting the author's context. The author, yeah, there's no purely unbiased account of the atonement, are there? All, all atonement theology is slightly contextual. Um, and actually, I've been looking for something which is inverted commas an introduction because I, mm. a lot of stuff. I've been reading of late is interesting but I probably wouldn't recommend it wholesale to a new Christian because it, it often kind of says here are all the con- here are all the conflicts around this and yeah, it, it's it, in a sense it um and offers perhaps perspectives that aren't necessarily inverted commas biblical but are going on in kind of more mainstream scholarship so uh I'd uh, go with Dan on if he's recommending that book by Mike Bird then sounds like a good place to start right well, guys, it's been uh, fantastic to talk about these things together. Thank you so much. Um, any final words? Let, uh, maybe, maybe Paul's words. Far be it from me that I should glory, um, that I should boast in anything but the cross of Christ. Um, I think <laughs> maybe that's an appropriate verse to finish on. I think just yeah, learn, learn to to glory and center your life around um the 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 life death resurrection of jesus um it's wonderful even just having this conversation just highlighted to me how how glorious it is so um yeah i encourage you go and dig into it more you will you will there will be nothing wrong that could come from studying the cross more Mm. I I, i think i would add just that don't elevate your own understanding of the cross above what the what it has accomplished and I, I see lots of debates taking place online where people hold too tightly to their particular one model and maybe aren't generous enough to go you know what let's let's celebrate what it has accomplished which we can agree on and then let's enjoy discussing how it functions but don't make that the thing above all things yeah you know, as Dan was saying the focus is Christ and what he's accomplished yeah well thank you guys it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me And goodbye from me.